I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This week's sponsor is Book of the Month Club again. Book of the Month Club is a service which I think is like the best thing ever, where you get to pick from five books each month uh, to get whichever one is your favorite. Book of the Month Club is offering Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books listeners an exclusive offer of signing up for just $5 for your first book. This is not to be missed. Bookofthemonthclub.com. Go check it out. And many of the books on this podcast have been Book of the Month Club picks. Uh, so go, just go buy them. Enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, for this exclusive offer. I'm really excited to be interviewing Elliot Ackerman, who's the author of novels Waiting for Eden, Dark at the Crossing, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Green on Blue. He also wrote Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning. He's a former Marine and served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. His work has been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and many other publications. His stories have been included in the Best American Short Stories and the Best American Travel Writing. He splits his time between New York and D.C., and I have to say, Elliot is also (laughs) dating a dear friend of mine who was the first guest on my podcast, Lee Carpenter, who's the author of 11 Days and Red, White, Blue. So, Elliot, comes to me through Lee, but also because of his amazing work as a National Book Award finalist. So welcome, Elliot. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. So much to talk about. You have the most decorated past, a Marine who did five tours and an author. Tell me about this intersection of now writing and the military and how you got into becoming a novelist. My my mom was a writer. So I always grew up around books. I grew up knowing authors. So it didn't seem like the weirdest thing to me. And then when I went to college, I did I studied history and literature at school, but then went right into the Marines. And I always maybe like suspected that I might write, but didn't really commit myself to it till I decided I was going to leave the Marine Corps and transition into something else. But I think, you know, we all have like different facets of our personality. It's funny, like the people who know me the longest, because sometimes like when I'm promoting a book, people will ask me like, oh, see, is, is it odd that you left the Marines and became a writer? That doesn't seem like something that a Marine would do. And um, usually I say, you know, the people who've known me the longest, I say, isn't it odd that you wound up in the Marines? Because you're always sort of like this creative artistic kid and then you wind up in the Marine Corps. Yeah, how did you, you end up in the Marines? Maybe well, I should have started with that. Well, I had this idea that, you know, I wanted a job when I came out of school or whether I was good at my job or bad at my job mattered. I wanted responsibility at a young age. And I was also sort of like that kid who never stopped playing with his G.I. Joes. So I think you like combined all of that. It, it, it led me into the Marine Corps. And then I happened to serve, you know, during some like very interesting and busy years. Wow. And you've done a combination of writing about your experiences and then coming up with fictitious people living through some of the elements that you experienced yourself. Do you find it therapeutic to write about what happened? Do you find it necessary to like go back? I read your article about going back to the place in where I'm forgetting where it was, but the doorway where your friend was murdered and you mm-hmm. went back and had to revisit. And like, what is that like for you? Sure. Well, I don't think it's like, I don't feel like it's necessarily therapeutic because like there's a real struggle that goes into writing books as you're trying to figure them out. I think that all of us are writing about the human condition and my understanding of what it means to be a person is informed by obviously many of my own experiences. And I think when you go to war, one of the things war does is it gives you a real wide angle view of like what we are capable of doing as humans, both at the one, the one extreme, like the, 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 you know, extreme acts of courage, like acts of love, you know, things that you 
you know, that you would never see just sort of on a you know, normal day in New York City. And then on the other hand, like these extreme acts of like depravity and savagery. So you get that at a young age and that sort of inf just informs your understanding of your characters, your understanding of the story. But often when I'm working about on a book, even if you know the war is going on or there's conflict going on on the sidelines, it's not like I'm drawing from specific military experiences. I'm drawing from my understanding of just what it means to be a person and trying to make my characters come alive. And how did you come up with the idea of Waiting for Eden, which was beautiful and kind of haunting in a way and just so raw, but also so much love? Yeah, look, with a lot of my books, it will sort of start, it'll often start with two things. Like, I'll have kind of an idea of what I think a book is about, like thematically. Like, I'm thinking about, quite, you know, thematic questions. And I think I want to try to tell a story about those thematic questions. You know, for Waiting for Eden, it's sort of these themes of like, what does it mean to be faithful to someone? What does it mean to stay true to someone who has been diminished in some way? I mean, in Eden's case, he's severely physically diminished, but, uh, you know, diminished emotionally, whatever it is. How do you stay faithful to that person? And the other thing that comes to mind often will be like, there'll be a first line frequently that will like pop yeah. into my head. And when it's sticky, like when that line kind of can't get out of my head and I carry it around for months, you know, I'm like, well, I think this is the, maybe the beginning of a book. And that's when I get serious and I really you know, try to start telling the story. So in Waiting for Eden, the first line of the book is, you know, I want you to understand Mary and what she did, but I don't know whether or not you will. And so there was this idea of, you know, Mary, the wife, Eden's wife. And Eden has been, you know, the concept of the book is, you know, he's basically been incapacitated. He is in a hospital bed. He has not been able to communicate effectively for years. And Mary's been keeping this vigil over him. So the book sort of started with that line. Okay, what Mary did, I didn't know what she had done. And I didn't know who was offering up that opening line. But I knew that, I knew a couple of things. I knew that I wanted the book to feel very intimate. And so that's why it had that kind of first person voice. But then that posed a problem, right? Because like, yeah. who's saying this? So I'm like, well, there's only two characters in my book at this point. It's like Eden. Well, Eden's in a bed and he can't talk to anyone. Okay, so it's probably not Eden. He's not going to be my narrator. <laughs> and maybe it's Mary, Eden's wife. But I'm like, well, you know, that probably wouldn't work because she would be talking about herself and she can't do this objectively and, or objectively. And then there's limitations on, you know, what you know about Eden. So I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe you need to have an omission. You need to have a level of omniscience. Well, I don't want to tell this story in the third person because a third person, you know, it would give you that omniscience to say what's going on with everyone to move around right. in the story, but it gives you too much distance. So I was like, huh, so how do I like solve this problem that I have between needing a certain level of omniscience, but needing the intimacy of a first person narrator? Hmm. I was like, huh, it's a ghost. This person saying this is a ghost. And the question book became, okay, well, like, well who's this ghost? And the identity of the kind of who this ghost is and who this voice is and how he factors into the relationship between Mary and Eden actually becomes what much of the book is about. Wow, that's so crazy. I mean, the whole time I was reading it, I was thinking about that line. I mean, often mm -hmm. you read first lines and I can't even think of what they were. But like you had like the reader hooked in, like, well, what is it? What happens? What's she going to do? And I was like on the edge of my seat. Thank you. I mean, like the book could be called Mary's Choice as easily as it could be called, you know, Waiting for Eden because she, you know, she's totally central to that story. I mean, it's really the, the story of her, Eden, and this ghost. It's a love triangle in many respects. It's also about Mary being a mother at the same time. Yes. And I know I often see things through that lens, just mm -hmm. being a mother, but having to care for a child at the same time as caring for a husband put her in such a really just precarious emotional position. 
Talk to me about that a little more. There was some, there was a quote in the hospital. She said, after a year, the guilt for her daughter overcame the guilt for her husband, right? So Mary mm-hmm. didn't know where to spend all that time. Who should she take care of? Tell right. me about that conflict. I think you have kids. I mean, I have kids too. You know, you know that guilt, right? You There's never enough of you to go around. So, I mean, in the opening of the book, she's been keeping this vigil at her husband's bedside for several years. And on the one hand, you might think, well, isn't that so noble of her? But she's been doing that at the expense of her daughter because her daughter has gone to live with her mother. And so the sort of the, the event that precipitates the action in the book is she's been keeping this vigil. Eden's in the bed and it, it's Christmas time. And she decides that she's going to go spend Christmas with her daughter. And again, she feels a lot of guilt about this for now she's going to leave Eden. The doctors say, don't worry, she's not going to know that he's not going to know that you're gone, which leads her to ask, well, if he's not going to know that I am gone, did he, does he even know that I'm here? So she's sort of wrestling with all of this. And in the opening pages of the book, while she's gone, Eden suffers a stroke. When he suffers that stroke, in my mind, it's almost like, like it's like a deck of cards is reshuffled. So he suffers this stroke. There's sort of an event that terrifies him. Mm-hmm. And he gets so afraid he suffers a stroke. But when he comes out of it, his brain has kind of been reorganized. And although parts of him are now even more diminished, certain parts of him have been awakened. And for the first time, he's conscious of the circumstances that he is in. And he tries to communicate what he wants to have happen next. Um, and the whole book is told over, you know, it's told you know, much in flashbacks but it's also really the present tense actions told her the few days of him trying to communicate what he wants to have happen. And you have the nurse come in on that Christmas because when the family's gone, then you you still fill in the room, right? It's not like the room is, I feel like it's, I can see it as a play, right? You have the bed on one right. side of the stage. So then you have the nurses come in. And one scene with the nurse I found particularly powerful when she touches Eden, who had suffered a lot of burns and she was a little squeamish to do so. But you write, she ran her finger up to the edge of the bandage and looked at his eyes again. And seeing that they saw nothing, her finger leapt from the bandage's edge onto the bare skin of his chest. It was burnt and smoked, bloodless, but not lifeless. This surprised her. The little piece of flesh she touched had more struggle in it than her whole body. Beneath her finger was survival. It was what a body could and would be when battered just to the edge. Whoa, (laughs) that is so good. I mean, that's so good. So tell me more about that. How are you like sitting there just right coming up with these sentences? Tell me about that passage. Do you even remember where you were when you wrote that? I think I was at a cupcake shop. No, come on. <laughs> yeah, I think I was. was that's, see, that's my problem. I should be eating more cupcakes, <laughs> I I and then I will write that, better. I think I was at a place where I like to get coffee and a ham and cheese biscuit in the morning, and I, you know, and I had a quiet corner where I could do a lot of work. So, anyways, I, I don't know if that's the answer. <laughs> but the wanted. idea of like the human body sort of fighting for itself, and like even when no one is really advocating for it, but it, it's like more than just the spirit of it. Right? Yes, and it's this idea, you know, I think with the nurse, it's this idea, you know, she's a young nurse who's basically taking care of him for this one 24-hour period where he has this sort of psychosomatic event Mm -hmm. that reorganizes his brain. I don't want to ruin it for the reader, kind of how it all goes down. But the I won't um, say anything. I'm not going to say anything. But, you know, you have a sense of what you want the scene to feel like. And I wanted there to be a sense of juxtaposition in that scene, I guess. You have Eden, who's really been through, like, the worst a person can be through. And this sort of pure spirit who's a nurse. She's a very young nurse, and she's kind of drawn the unlucky shift, which is watching the burn word on, on Christmas Eve. And so, you know, because she's young, and, like, right. she gets that shift because it's not a popular shift. And she's just sort of watching him, and she's curious, you know, about him. 
she's curious as to what he represents and probably the vocation that she herself has chosen, which is caring for people who've been hurt in this way. And she wants to touch it. You know, she literally, you know, literally wants to just see what it feels like. And when she puts her finger on it, it's like she kind of sees everything, like everything that a person is capable of and the whole range of pain that she in her life will probably be responsible for trying to ameliorate in some way as a nurse. I mean, she's not a named character in the book. She's just in that scene. But I think, I don't know, I just, you just, you know, you know what you want it to feel like. And so you try to create the scene around the feeling you're trying, you're attempting to convey. It's like even looking at an injury, it's the same thing when you're like, you just want to peek, you just, but you don't really. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you've actually seen so much of this carnage having been in, mm-hmm. like most people I feel like writing, well, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say most people writing haven't, maybe they imagine it, but I feel like you've been in it, right? And so then you have to, writing about the relationships and what happens on them later, you have all this data from friends, I'm sure, people who have been through this. Like, have you seen this happen in real life, anything like this? Or even just on a more minor scale, people struggling with their relationships at home and being injured or the after effects. This is a long and rambling question, but, you know, what have you seen that maybe is most similar to this? Or I've, I mean, listen, I've, I have unfortunately seen like a pretty wide spectrum of, of, of individuals who've been hurt and nasty things. However, I don't feel in some way that helps me when I sit down and try to actually tell a story because I know what I'm sort of drawing on, you mm-hmm. know, like I know the well I'm going to, mm-hmm. that, I'm, that I'm pulling this up from. And it's not necessarily that. I mean, maybe it helps with like certain technical things where I'm writing about medical stuff. I'm like, oh, I, I know this because I had to study it at one point. But it's more, you know, the, the book is about trying to love someone and stay faithful to someone who has been diminished. And I think that's something like we all experience, whether the diminishment is as radical as what has happened to Eden, but in other cases, in some ways, no less painfully, when the diminishment is something less radical. Because when it's as radical as what happened to Eden, everybody can see it and understand it. Mm-hmm. When it's less radical, it's tough because you might be the only one who sees it and understands the depth of that diminishment and how you have to learn to love someone again and how you have to understand the ways you can give yourself to them again. Does it make you question how you would respond in a similar situation? Well, I think, like, I feel like novels, the novels I read that I like aren't answers. They're actually, the whole books are all questions. You know, like the most, I feel the most elegant works of fiction, the one that I like, the ones that I sort of aspire to try to write are the ones where, the story has carefully set up a series of questions, never answering them for you, but leaving you as the reader walking away, trying to answer them for yourself. So I don't feel like the book doesn't necessarily answer questions for me, but what it does is it, in writing, you know, it, it frames my questions clearly for me. And I mean, I know you're dating a good friend of mine, so I don't want to like make anything sound bad. But do you think that if anything were to happen to her, you would stay by her side? <laughs> I, I would like not. this I on would. the record. <laughs> yes. Yes I, yes, I would. Okay, there. Thank you. Good. I think she should have asked the reverse. Oh, would she stay, stay by, by me? I, <laughs> oh my goodness. So how do you write? So sometimes you write in cupcake shops and have biscuits and whatever. Where else do you like to write? Do you usually write out and about in the world? Do you like to write in the office, in an office somewhere? Like, tell me about a little more about your process, how long books take. And I often write out and about in the world just because I like the general energy of being in the world. If I sit 
at home at a desk all day, I sort of, no matter how much I've done, I feel like I haven't done anything. Whereas if I just go out to the cupcake shop or the cafe or the mm-hmm. diner or whatever quiet corner I get into, I don't know, psychologically that works better for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would say it's not very sexy, but I'm kind of like a grinder. Like I grind it out every day. So mm-hmm. I will, if I'm working on new material, I will say I'm writing, I write a thousand words Monday to Friday. And I sit at my desk and I do that. Or if I'm revising a book, I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to try to get through like today's work is 15 pages of revisions. And I get through that work and then I'm done. And I don't think about it. I have a discipline of trying not to think about it and trying to let my subconscious, just let it sit in my subconscious. I'd say I always finish a day writing, knowing what's going to happen the next day. Like I write at the bottom of the page, like tomorrow this happens, this happens, they do this just so I can get started again. I'll frequently like finish in the middle of a sentence so I can end the sentence and have something to pick up with. And that's, that's sort of has been my, my process and it seems to work for me, but there's, you know, she mentioned Lee. I mean, you know, I live with Lee and I see how she writes and she writes, you know, very differently than I do, you know, with equal or greater effect. (laughs) Lee helped edit something I wrote right after business school and she like handed it back and she's like, I think you have way too many exclamation marks. And I was like, okay, and I think about Lee like basically every email I write because I'm always using exclamation marks and she never is. Yes. And I'm like, okay, well, this is, I, it turns out this is just how I write. But, <laughs> Everybody but does it's nice differently. because when you do get an exclamation mark. Oh, from her, her, yeah. No, it's like showering. It's like one of those emojis that's like yeah. exploding on the screen. Or print and frame that. Yeah, <laughs> so funny. So are you working on anything now? I am. I have. Well, I have a. I have another novel that comes out in May called Red Dress in Black and White. That's all set in Istanbul during the Gezi Park riots of 2013, which were a very big political moment there. And it's about a an American woman who is married to a Turkish real estate developer, and she, over the course of the, the present action in the novel, takes place over the course of a single day, in which she is running off with her lover who is an American photographer and trying to take the son with them. Except sort of the, it's the twist of the novel is as you read it, is you realize the hero of the Wait, book. Wait, don't tell me. Don't ruin it. Well, I'm not going to ruin it. Okay, okay. The hero of the book quickly becomes the Turkish real estate developer husband. So you sort of, you, you sort of, it's a window into that world. So, but that um, must be finished. You must have finished. That's it. finished, yeah. right? So, as you know, you know, you, that's been finished for a while. So uh, that's not a good enough answer. Another like amazing book coming down the pike is is not, you know, that's not enough for me. What, what, what I, else? What else what are you doing? Well, I mean, the thing I'm most actively working on is I'm just kidding. Okay, I know, I know, okay. I'm kidding. Is a guy named Admiral Jim Stavridis. He was the commander of NATO. Uh, as a retired four-star admiral, and we know each other from the Fletcher School, which is where I went to graduate school. He was the dean there, although not when I was there. And we have the same editor at Penguin. And so the idea came up to co-write a book, which would be a, a, a work of speculation about what it would look like if the U.S. and China went to war in the year 2034. Oh, wow. You know, so he and I are, have written that together and just finished up sort of a first draft, which has been fun. It's been sort of a, a departure for me. But also, you know, I, I write a lot about foreign policy and do lots of journalism. So that has allowed me to kind of merge the two a little bit. And we've had great fun doing it together. Are you ever going to maybe run for president or get into politics in a big way? I feel like you have this amazing background. You're obviously brilliant. Like, what about leading the nation? What do you think? No, I like I like telling the truth. Uh, <laughs> you can do that in books. No, it's, it's not for me. No aspirations. Yeah, no All right. aspirations. Well, just a shame for the rest mm-hmm. of us. All right. Well, I tried. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there? Yeah, I mean, you got to work. Like, do the work. I mean, it sounds really obvious, but sometimes it's, it's not obvious. Yep. Like, you have to do the work. You have to read. I think people sometimes don't recognize that, like, you know, my process, too, is like, and I read. I read as much as I write, and I try to read really 
widely without a you know very specific agenda because that's that's how you get the good stuff and don't let rejection beat you down too much you know you have to it's horrible to say when you use a sports metaphor but like i call it up at bats like you have to get up to bat and you have to keep getting up to bat because that's the thing you can control is how much you're putting yourself out there and you know if you only you know connect on something get something published or whatever it is you know one out of 20 times well, if you're getting up to bat a hundred times, like that's that's pretty good. Like you're going to do all right. But if you you know you only get up and try once or twice or three times, like you know you might be great, but you're not trying enough, and so you're going to think you're failing. Hmm. So, so one of the great things about writing is, in many respects, you have the control. One of the horrible things about writing is that you have the control. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read. Yeah, books. a total pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonthclub.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for just $5. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 